0: Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. July 22,
1: 2021. When people hear the term voter suppression, they are likely to think of efforts underway in Georgia and other states to impose strict voter ID requirements on all who wish to take part in the political process. Depending on one's point of view, this is either a sensible measure designed to ensure the integrity, transparency, and fairness of elections, or a return to Jim Crow. Progressive rhetoric always casts voter suppression as the despicable effort of a Republican party trying desperately to use whatever means it can find to cling to its ever-diminishing political power. In California, the recent actions of Secretary of State Shirley Weber have given new meaning to voter suppression, To put it more precisely, Weber may have severely limited the choices the voters have by excluding candidate Larry Elder from the ballot in the recall election scheduled for September 14. It is a measure of the broad dissatisfaction with the job that Gavin Newsom has been doing as governor of California that some 80 candidates filed paperwork to run in the recall election. Disappointment and dismay over the Democrats' performance focuses particularly on his relentless forcing of one-size-fits-all COVID measures on the state, the most restrictive in the nation, as well as his failure to stem the rising tide of violent crime and the rampant homelessness, vagrancy, shoplifting, and assault on the quality of life that have made some people who grew up loving San Francisco afraid to return there. But the roots of public disenchantment with Newsom go even further and deeper, Perhaps nothing better symbolizes his anemic approach to public order and safety than the sit-lie law he proposed back in 2010 when mayor of San Francisco, which permitted police to ticket vagrants on public streets only at certain times of the day and quickly became something of a dead letter due to its spotty enforcement. And, of course... Everyone remembers Newsom's attendance of a dinner at the swanky French Laundry restaurant on November 6, 2020, when the state was under a lockdown so strict that some people could not remember the last time they had dined out. These are just a few of the issues on which candidate Larry Elder, who grew up in South Central LA and escaped that impoverished milieu to attend Brown University and become a highly successful author and radio host, has predicated his run for governor. There can be little doubt that Elder's message resonates with a large swath of the electorate, but now Elder is off the ballot because of what may be an illegal move on Weber's part. As detailed in a report by Katie Grimes in the California Globe on July 20, Weber has appealed to California election law to kick Elder off the ballot on the grounds that redactions on the tax returns released by Elder went beyond what a candidate may legally redact. What is the proper way to proceed in such a scenario? California Globe reached out to Mark Moiser, an elections attorney, who said that the Secretary of State can prepare a new version of the tax return with only the redactions permitted under California law, but may not drop a candidate from the ballot. Moiser said in a Facebook post that the voter suppression on display here goes far beyond the ID requirements we have heard so much about. Elder himself released a tweet acknowledging that Weber could have taken that course of action. His campaign has gone to court to challenge the legality of Weber's move. It remains to be seen whether a candidate with a platform vastly more popular than that of California's failed Democrat governor will stay off the ballot as a result of illegal and possibly politically motivated chicanery.
0: Update. On Wednesday night, gubernatorial candidate Larry Elder won his lawsuit against California's Secretary of State Shirley Weber, who on Saturday released a list of 41 candidates who she claimed filed the required paperwork to run in the September 14th recall election. As California Globe reported, Elder's name was excluded from that list. Elder filed a lawsuit against the Secretary of State and the hearing was Wednesday. Elder won and his name will now appear on the list. I don't find that Mr. Elder was required to file tax returns at all, wrote Sacramento Superior Court judge Laurie Earl only hours before Weber certified the final list of candidates.
1: How the Mighty Have Fallen. Once one of the most powerful men in the history of entertainment, Harvey Weinstein's penal ordeal hit a new low on Tuesday. As the convicted rapist underwent extradition from New York State to California, where he faces charges of having sexually assaulted five women in Beverly Hills and Los Angeles over the years 2004 to 2013. Molly Crane Newman's report in the New York Daily News on July 20 details how correctional officials took this step in defiance of the wishes of Weinstein's West Coast Criminal counsel, and quotes lawyer Mark Worksman lamenting that the district attorney proceeded with the extradition without waiting for a judge to rule on the defense's habeas petition. The issue raised here is not any question of Weinstein's guilt or innocence, so much as the possible humanitarian concerns that arise when a 69-year-old man, reportedly in a state of failing health and on the verge of blindness, undergoes a cross-country transfer that can throw off his regimen of round-the-clock medical care and the administration of Avastin for his eyesight. Weinstein's eyeglasses are reportedly broken, but prosecution lawyers in California are unswayed and maintain that Weinstein's Avastin will proceed without interruption and that it may even be possible to get the convict fitted with new glasses containing corrective lenses. All other things being equal, Weinstein looks set to go to trial in California before the end of the year. For all the understandable zeal to prosecute Weinstein for his savage and terrible acts of rape and assault, there appears, as of yet, even in this age of cancel culture, to be no backlash in the offing against the celebration, enjoyment, and iconic status of the films that Weinstein produced before his ignominious fall. Even now, people seem entirely willing to separate art from the deeply flawed human beings who bring art before their eyes and ears. In fact, Pulp Fiction remains such a popular and iconic film that there is even buzz about the possibility of Quentin Tarantino working on a prequel. A piece by Joe Gillis on ScreenRant.com explores how Tarantino might go about telling the story of the two Vega brothers, namely John Travolta's Vince Vega from Pulp Fiction and Michael Madsen's Vic Vega from Reservoir Dogs. Gillis concludes that Tarantino will probably be averse to using the new de-aging technology that would be needed to cast Travolta and Madsen as younger versions of these legendary screen characters, and that the best approach might be for Tarantino to proceed with a novelization of their story, just as he did with this year's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novel, the subject of a recent review on the Book and Film Globe website. As F. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote, There are no second acts in American lives but the stories Americans bring to the world have infinite iterations for better and for worse. For many sci-fi and horror fans, one piece of big news this month has been the announcement that Noah Hawley, known for his work on the Fargo TV series, has signed on to be the showrunner behind the adaptation of another iconic, legendary film for the medium of TV. Hawley has reportedly written scripts for early episodes of an Alien series that will air on FX sometime in 2022. According to reports in Esquire, The Guardian, and other sources, Hawley plans to emphasize a specific theme of the 1979 film and make it the thrust of the new series. Namely, the tension between blue-collar protagonists and the corporate masters, whose interest in harnessing the xenomorph species for aggressive military and cynical profit-based ends led to calamity in the alien movies, and thwarted characters' efforts to destroy the dangerous aliens when they had a chance. Contemporary sci-fi has long displayed a tendency to look at social cultural trends in the present and envision where they might take humanity in 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, or a millennium or two. And the planned alien series readily plays with this conceit. Esquire on July 6 quoted Hawley as saying, You will see what happens when the inequality we're struggling with now isn't resolved. If we as a society can't figure out how to prop each other up and spread the wealth, then what's going to happen to us? Leave aside for now the questionable notion that people today have a moral need or obligation to prop each other up. Hawley is apparently not an Ayn Rand fan. Some sci-fi and horror fans may delight in the development of a new chapter in a franchise that has long had a foot in one genre and a foot in the other but neither Hawley nor the journalists who have written about the upcoming series appear to take note of the irony here. Ridley Scott's 1979 film was a moody, stylish, suspenseful, and literate classic that relied heavily on the talents of its seven-person cast. The crew of a huge cargo ship responds to what they believe to be an SOS, emanating from a remote planet, only to find out too late that the signal was not an SOS, but a warning to avoid the planet, where any interlopers were likely to become the victims of a xenomorph. There are those who think that it might have been better to leave well enough alone and not make a decade-spanning franchise out of the concept behind Alien. Recent films in the franchise, particularly Prometheus and Alien Covenant, received mixed to terrible reviews and were hokey and silly. Alien Covenant was the subject of review on Gizmodo.com headed, Alien Covenant may be the biggest disappointment of the summer. Though obviously they are profitable, for some, these films represent nothing so much as the squandering of a good concept for the basis commercial ends at the hands of the big corporate studios. Maybe Hawley's series will be better. Maybe in its emphasis on corporate malfeasance and the exploitation of hapless characters who become dupes of the corporate masters they serve, it will remind us of what is best about the original film, which has timely themes, and in which scenes where the alien appears on screen really comprise, in total, only a small portion of the film's running time. But the endless prolonging and rebooting of the franchise, without regard for the quality of the work produced, raises the grim possibility that the new series itself will be one more example of the very thing it purports to illustrate. The tendency to squeeze every last dollar out of a once interesting concept, to bludgeon it to death in a Hollywood where the dollar rolls and no good concept or cinematic achievement can simply stand as art without the endless exploitation of cynical profiteers. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio
0: Hopper.